right, welcome to another episode of the That's My Dad podcast. I'm Scott Hilton, and man, you know, I don't know how I get to associate with so many incredible people, but I do, and Todd Carnes, as it turns out, is quite an incredible person, but is he's just a little Todd to me. We were neighbors <laughs> growing up. And uh, welcome, to, welcome. Thank you, man. Uh, thank you. Great down. to be home. Long drive. Yeah, yeah. Yep, I appreciate you doing that. You're up in South Carolina. We're recording in Alabama. But uh, Todd is the author of Burying Home. It's a book he wrote. And that's interesting to me, Todd. This is a thick book, and I'm a poor reader, but I read this in almost one setting. This is the fastest I've ever read a book. So just to give a little context to, you know, to a couple of old guys doing a podcast here. We grew up in the in between the cotton mill and the steel plant. Literally between the cotton mill and the steel plant. On you, top of the railroad tracks. Yeah, you could you could uh, we were neighbors and you could walk from my house a half a block and you could be in the what we call the mill village. Uh-huh. And then you could walk from our house, either of our houses a half a block and you'd be on the railroad tracks where the steel plant was. Right. So so there was soot everywhere. All the years <laughs> we were growing up, there was soot all over our houses, yeah. and they called us lint heads right? because of the cotton mill there. But you had quite an incredible story, and I really didn't know it, even though we grew up together and I was in and out of your house a lot. You were at my house a lot. Um, there were some things going on in your home that, that none of us knew about, right? and you've written a lot about it, that in Bearing Home. So tell us about that and before you do let me just say you you've had quite an interesting life you were a missionary in russia you you founded a, a very successful large church you're now you've been in politics and you're now in real estate and that, you've had an interesting life let's put it that way we'll get to that but kind of take us back to when we were kids yeah so our our, our neighborhood was great we did have a lot of boys we we had a lot of fun and uh and I have a lot of great memories there, but but at the same time, when I, I named my book "Burying Home" because it was when my father passed away, I, I have this saying that that when you lose your first parent, it's painful. You lose your second parent, you you not only bury your second parent, you have to bury home because you you now have nowhere to go home to. And so out of that, but it was it was time to tell my story that I'd been ruminating on for decades and not in a sense of of any kind of oversharing but I just wanted to I just had this story that I wanted to tell because after I was in ministry 20 some odd years and you just don't know what goes on behind the doors and there's just all kinds of things that go on behind closed doors and mm. and in our little neighborhood and, and right there where we were at um you know, my dad, I, I love my dad, and, and he did a lot of great things. He was just a man given to addiction. And and when you get kind of caught by addiction, which I did as well, but just not nearly as long, it, it can just take you to really dark places. And uh, and so we just, in our early years, we just got taken to some really dark places. A lot of, a lot of violence, a lot of, you know, literally – staying up till one, two o'clock in the morning and, and yelling and screaming and, and violence and you're, and you're young. And I've had a lot of time to think about it now. And what I realize is that when you're a young man and there's violence in your home, it, uh, 
it emasculates you a little bit because you you know that you should be a protector and somehow take that on, but you're a nine or ten year old kid, mm-hmm. and you know you can't take that on, and so it's a an emotional thing that happens that I think uh, it took me decades to kind of work through and and try to figure out, which ultimately I did, and and you've read the book. I mean, it, it's it actually has a good ending, but it mm-hmm. but it started tough, and uh, and it was just a reminder of just being a young man and and laying in bed and seeing seeing addiction and and violence and thinking like I'll never do that. That's the worst thing in the world. Mm-hmm. And then you wake up one day and you're 17 years old and you're in addiction and violence and that cycle has got you. Mm-hmm. And and it got me at 16 or 17 and and rolled me through the mud until I till I came to faith at 21. So it's it's so seductive and so generational. Yeah, so you were, all those years that we were growing up together, and we thought everything was fine in the Carnes home, there was there was chaos. Yeah, Basically, yeah. Your, your mom had some mental health issues. Is it okay to, yeah. to yeah. say that? Yeah. You were dealing with those. I remember going to your house, and I would see your mom, but I didn't, I didn't know that there were some there were problems there. You know, we were just kids. We were just growing up playing, playing basketball and football. And then your, your dad had substance abuse issues. And, uh, it was, it was a quite a chaotic life for you. Uh, tell us some of the things that, that you encountered that you talk about in the book. Some of the things you encountered as a child growing up in that. You just, you just learn how to hide it. Like there's, uh, all this research on adult children of alcoholics and, and you have to learn how to hide things. And so, you know, my dad, he, he, uh, he was somewhat just up and down emotionally. And so he would, he would start drinking bourbon on day one and he would be fiery, mad and ornery and somewhat dangerous for about 48 hours. Mm. And that's when, they would yell through the night, and he would grab my mom, and it just all kinds of bad stuff went down. You just laying there at night, just begging, the cursing and the yelling and the screaming to stop. And so it was like all of his anger from all the pressure of life would come out in about forty-eight hours, and then, and then he would sit in his recliner and drink, literally another seven or ten days, really? not eat anything, just stay totally totally waxed and then that's when you go into kind of the sad drunks and it's just and then everybody's hiding for him because guys are coming to the house wanting work he ran a business people want to get paid everybody's nervous how long you know is he going to do this for a week is he going to do it for a month Mm -hmm. and then he would he would make me come sit in his lap you know and he's he's just totally blitzed and you know when people are just totally drunk they just say all kinds of crazy stuff but he would he would make me come sit in his lap and talk all kinds of crazy stuff. And, you know, you just want to get away. And then, and then it would take him literally a day or two of, of trying to sober up. And it was just kind of violent throwing up. Just, just the body's just wrecked, Mm -hmm. but, but he would, he would come out. He would, he would finally come out of that and quit drinking and come up. And then he was two weeks behind and then he had to go hustle and make it all happen again. And he would go do that. Maybe, and maybe he'd make it a couple months, and then the cycle would repeat. And that and went on your whole childhood? The vast majority of it, probably till I was 13, 14 years old. 
So what happened? You said that for until you were 13 or 14, did something happen that changed? He, he, uh, he just backed off of that hard of drinking. I think he just got older and he couldn't drink that hard. And so the long one or two week spells of total drunkenness kind of went away. And, but about that time, my mom's mental state was, she was just clinically depressed and she was never out of the house. And, and so there was just a lot of focus on her. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she was just all types of sickness. And, and my mom and dad, they just, uh, they grew up together in the Mill Village. I mean, they went on dates when they were 12 and 13 years old, but it was just, they, they just lived a hard, hard life. They, they, never, uh, they never enjoyed the goodness, I think, of marriage in a lot yeah. of ways. And so... During that time, my my dad left a few times, and he he uh, had some affairs and moved out, and it was but but the violent drunkenness wasn't there. I mean, we'll see Trey Knight tomorrow night. I mean, I, I distinctly remember the police coming to the house and mother throwing something through the window and grabbing me and running me over there, and Big Todd holding me back, and you know, just just chaotic times. Chaos. But it, but it you know it, it leveled out. But I will say this, I always tell people this, like, and I have a crazy memory. I can't remember names, but I remember things distinctly. And I remember my father laying me on Hunter's bed. He had red and black all through his room. He laid me down and laid Hunter down, and he kind of put his hands on the bed and put one knee on the bed and told us he was leaving. Like, you never forget that. Hmm. He came back. He, he was gone a matter of months or something, but... Just for all you dads out there, I'm I'm 53 years old. That's when I was seven. You never forget that. It's still you still have some pain from those. There's still some scars. There's potentially. I mean, there's certainly there's certainly uh, certainly scars. You know, like I and I want to talk about. It. I mean, we got reconciled, but but the fact that you know there's indelible things that get etched in your mind that you just never forget. Yeah, so you had this chaotic life, and the and I went off to college because I was three years older than you. But something tr- very tragic happened in your life as a senior, I believe, in high school. Was it or right after high school? Right after that, the the year after that. And yeah, tell uh, us about that. Well, I, I'm not sure which one you're talking about, uh, but right after my senior year, my best friend Jason Brown, when he got killed, um, he was. We we were best friends, and I, I dropped him off at his house the night before we had been out, and he was in Walnut Park, and uh, we stayed up till one or two in the morning, and I went back to see him the next day. And when I rolled up, they were they were working on him. There was an ambulance there, and they were working on him because he had been electrocuted with this piece of equipment. And I remember I remember trying to follow the ambulance to the hospital, and I was so disoriented, I I got lost. I remember getting to the hospital and Jason's dad, who's still alive, Diamond Dave, sent me to back to Sansom to get his little brother. I remember going to the field house and trying to tell his little brother. And I remember I, from there back, I convinced myself that he wasn't dead, that, that he was alive. And So anyway, everybody has that first tragic experience with eternity. That, that was it for me. It was it's the first time you realize you're mortal. But you didn't react in the best Best way to that, best I remember. I didn't. I, I 
it's so shocking to the system that I, I certainly contemplated uh, giving my life to God and figuring out eternity. I contemplated it for, for weeks. But at the end of the day, I had achieved this social status through through the sins of the world, and I, and I just loved the things of the world more than things of God. I actually went to the edge of the cliff. I looked over. I knew it was the right thing to do, and I turned around and walked back. Mm-hmm. And, and there is a deal where you, you, you know, when a pig returns to the mud, like you get muddier than you've ever been. Uh, and so that's, that's really what happened. I was 18, and for the next three years, it was just total destruction in my life. And you were drinking alcohol. I became the thing that my dad was that I hated when I was nine. I knew I had become that. And, and strangely enough, I was, I was the exact same thing. I start drinking and the anger would come out and, and you get in fights and it's just, you know, full anger. And then you go through the cycle and you come down and then you're depressed and sad and got sad drunks and just, and I already knew that, that it kind of had me. Fortunately, I was, I had a roommate, Craig Goose McGriff, who was right man, right place, who was ready to catch me when I mm-hmm. when I hit rock bottom. Craig's a guy we grew up with. He mm-hmm. grew up across the street from us, actually. Yeah. 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 So he was there for you. What? Tell us about that. It's a great story. Uh, Goose was, he was, uh, you know, he, he was always just a good guy. Mm-hmm. And when we went off to Alabama together, he found some guys that were believers and kind of got to the next level. And I found some guys that were uh, that were partiers and got to the next level. So we were just diverging, but we we went all the way back to to the little league baseball. So we had some yeah. deep roots that held us together. But but that last year, there was guys in Campus Crusade for Christ telling Goose, "Man, you you need to get out of that. You can't live with that guy any longer. It's just bad for you. It's bad for everybody." He's you just and Goose were roommates. He's just cycling down, and they were they were telling him that the best thing he could do would be to leave. And Goose is too loyal. Hmm. And God bless him. Like, I mean, it probably was the right. I'd probably tell somebody to leave. But Goose is, he's steady, strong, and loyal in the next semester. I turned 21. And so uh, I turned 21 on a Friday. So at 12.01 on Thursday night, I started hitting the clubs. And did that from 12.01 on Thursday until about 8 a.m. on Sunday morning. Started in Tuscaloosa, went through Auburn, came back, did the whole thing. Sunday afternoon, I was sitting on my couch, hungover, feeling like crap. And I just had the conscious thought, it's got to be more to it than this. It's got to be more to it than this. Because I was, I was disgusted with who I was, but I didn't, I didn't have the confidence to live any other way really didn't have the knowledge that I could live any other way. And that very day, Goose came in and strong-armed me to go to this Bible study with this guy named Bard Johnston that I did not want to go to. And I did it just because of Goose. Because he had been a loyal friend. Because he had been a loyal friend. Loyalty to him. You never, ever give up. That guy told me that night, he said, said, uh, no matter how dirty you are, you can come to Jesus just as you are. And I'm sitting there thinking, bro, you have no idea how dirty I am from just the last three days hmm. in my head. But he he said, you know, you don't clean up to get in the shower. 
like you can come just like you are a student. And I, uh, I listened to what he had to say. I kind of laid low. He gave me a book, a little booklet by Bill Bright. I went home and read the whole thing and, and read the prayer on the back. Got saved about 2 a.m. that morning. Wow. Did alcohol ever call your name again? Did it come chasing after you? You know, it, uh, it bound me for those early years, and I didn't, I didn't touch it for 25 years probably, something like that. Yeah. And so, so at this stage of life, sometimes I have a casual beer, and it, it doesn't matter. Uh, but I, at least two decades, I, I stayed away. So what happened after you got you got married eventually, and then God led you to to open a church? Is that what happened? I mean, actually, there was a guy uh, who was leading a church in Lexington, South Carolina, and he invited us to come there and be a, a global missions pastor. So we went there, and we were gassed. I, I in our first eight years of marriage, we had fifteen homes in four countries. I'm sorry, 15 homes in four countries in eight years, first eight years of marriage. And it about killed us. It was way too much. I, I needed somebody older to kind of slow me down. But So when we got home and got to this church and got in this steady state position, it gave us a little chance emotionally to heal from all that chaos. And mm-hmm. this church was really great to us. And I, I served there for seven years, and then I had a friend who had started a church and Kind of classic story was meeting in a lunchroom with about 80 folks and, and I went and joined with him and that's where Radius Church was born and we we started right there and, and began planting that church. Yeah. Your mom passed away as as an adult. Tell us about that process. What happened there? Yeah, so again, like the, the home we grew up in was just incredibly stressful for my mom especially and and so she began, she, she went in a deep depression when I was probably seventh, eighth grade. And, and my mom's just the kindest, gentlest soul. So that was just, that, that wound almost feels like the, the hardest for me just to watch her deteriorate. And so she, she wound up with dementia that progressed over a decade and just went downhill. And then she passed when I was about 30. Um, but she had, she'd really not been in her right mind for eight years at that time, something like that. So I really lost her young mm-hmm. and it was just, it's just a great tragedy. Tell us about the story with your dad. That's, that's one of the things in your book that I was so, uh, just enthralled in. Tell us about that, that so, ending. Yeah. So here's the, the interesting thing about that is that when I got exposed to other families where husbands and wives were, were cordial and loved each other, and when I saw basically what normality was, then then I, I came to faith. And then, in, as a young man in your twenties, when you're when you don't really you hadn't really carried a lot of responsibility, I was mad. I was really angry with my father because I began to see what was normal, and I was blaming him for the depression and pain in my mom's life, which a lot of that's true. Um, and I was just so all through my twenties, I just I made more and more runs at him, and I made verbally sparring with him, trying to hold him accountable for the craziness that was my childhood. But it's easy to do that in your 20s before you've carried the real weight and responsibility of being a dad, of being a husband. And so I 
I got a little softer in my 30s as I began to raise my family. And, and I didn't make a lot of headway with my father in that, obviously. And, and we kind of grew distant. And then I got to my 40s. And in my early 40s, I just, you know, forgiveness is a process. And I, I just got there. I don't know. I don't know the magic pill, but I just got there because I remember thinking that that I want good things for my dad. I, I, I don't want him to remember the violence that he placed on my brother, my mother, and I. I don't want him to remember. I don't want him to, to even think about those regrets. I want him to forget those, and I want him to remember the good things. That's when you know you've truly forgiven. But it, it took me over a decade to get there and a lot of maturity and some of my own dealing with some of my own, you know, the more, the more you sin, the more easy it is to uh, show grace because you, the more you need it, mm-hmm. you know, as Jesus said, you know, you've, you were without sin, throw the first stone. So the beautiful story is that as I got there I, in my book, I, I wrote him a letter and when he died, I was in his house and I wrote him a lot of letters, some of them condemning when I was in my twenties, but I wrote him this one in the forties where I just, it was very simple. It was a card and I just thanked him. Thank you for taking me fishing Thanks for taking me golfing. Thanks for single-handedly pulling our family out of the poverty of the Mill Village and giving me opportunity to go to school. It was just, thank you, thank you, thank you. You, you were a good father. That was the one he kept. That was the one I found when he died. And quite honestly, when I, when I found it, it was like, the biggest relief because I I not only forgave him, I I verbalized it. Because I, I remember I remember reminding him of the pain in the twenties. And so I I was just so happy that I communicated that and I was so happy that he held on to it. And it was it was just a beautiful thing, and it's not. I could have easily, I could have easily missed that, and and then you know the, the crazy part of the whole story is my dad. He he, he studied some religion and theology. Like he, he actually had an experience early in life where he changed a lot about his life, kind of like me. But then when you return, you become twice the son of hell that you were mm-hmm. when you taste what is good and return. And we both had that experience. But when he was on his deathbed, I I made it to his deathbed. I I told him that he was a good father. I held his hand. I I reminded him of the good things. Martin Luther said, when you're on your deathbed, man, you you remember the grace of God and the good things. And uh, one day I was in the back of our den and he started calling for me. And he was in and out of lucidness during this time, and he started calling, and he said, Todd, Todd. Uh, and he called me to his bedside, and I, I was behind him. I don't even know how he knew I was there, and so he called me to his bedside. And this was probably 36 hours before he died. And I grabbed his hand, and I said, what is it, Chief? That's what I called him, Chief. And he, he said, uh, God help me. Jesus saved me. I'm calling on Jesus to save me. I don't remember the exact words, but he said multiple times, God help me. Jesus saved me. I'm, 
I'm calling on Jesus to save me. And I told him multiple times, I go, man, the one thing God loves to do is he loves to save great sinners. And it was just that little interaction. And if somebody else would have told me that would have happened, I never would have believed him. And my was- brother was gone. But he, he, uh, I told my brother, who, who had subsequently come to faith before that, and, and it was almost like a little bit after that. It, you know, it's one of those things that's so surreal, it's almost like you, you don't believe it. Mm-hmm. But, but it happened, and I wrote it down, and he, you know, I remember when I first went in the ministry, he, he would beg me not to. But there at the end, I, God had placed me to be the priest in the family, and, and, and he basically called me up, and, and it gave me hope. You, you had to make a special effort. I think you came to spend the, the, his last few hours. You rushed. Absolutely, yeah. To be yeah. able to stay there in the house on Rose Lawn. Right. Where he had cursed and hurt your mom so bad. and Guns pulled, police come in. I mean, it, it, it was crazy, but it came full circle. And... And honestly, you know, you don't, light overcomes darkness, and you you just remember the light yeah. when the light comes. Yeah. And the darkness, and, and I put the darkness in the book because 20 years in ministry, there's a lot of people living in darkness. There's a lot of young men who feel emasculated because, because they couldn't protect their moms when they were little. There's a lot of adult children of alcoholics who are guilt-laden and, and lacking confidence and, and dealing with all kinds of emotional turmoil. Like, I wanted to tell the story, and, I, uh, and I'm just so thankful that, that God gave us that ending. Yeah, it's, it's quite a if – you haven't, if you haven't read the book, you've got to read Burying Home by, by Todd Carnes. That – story of the the last day you spent with your dad's really really moving what would you say to the kid that's out there listening who's where you used to be and this if you would just look in the camera and speak to him yeah to the to the young man that's that's in the home that's got all the pain i would say you you be careful because the force of gravity is going to pull you right down that same road, and you cannot let that happen. As Scott often says, you, you've got to be the one to flip the script, and you will only flip the script if you bow down to Jesus who has power to pull you out of that place. Because it's not always going to be that way. And you're going to have the opportunity to come out of there, and you're going to be the priest of that family, and you're going to be the force of redemption, and you're going to be the one who brings grace, and you're going to be the one who they call at their deathbed, and you're going to be the one who changes the trajectory of the entire family. And it's not easy, and you'll have to bow down to do it, but but don't you give up hope. Hope sustains. And to you young men in your 20s who are just starting your race, I would just say, be humble. There's a, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with being a dad until you've run the whole race. You just don't understand it. And as you go through it, you will find that grace. And to you guys in your 30s and 40s who, who have some real fatherhood wounds, I would say don't run from those, run towards those because 
because you want to try to get to that spot so that when you bury your dad and bury home that that you find the letter you find you find your peace offering to your father that that you went back and you made it happen if possible it's not always possible but where possible finding that letter and knowing that I had I'd done all I could do for redemption was one of the most satisfying things in my life. You're the father of three beautiful girls. I am. Yeah, a house full of women. Yes. What? And and they're almost all. What are the ages now? Twenty one, twenty three, and twenty five. That's what I thought. They're all adults now. Mm-hmm. So as a as a dad looking back, what do you think are some of the things you did right raising those girls? See, see, like. <laughs> One of the problems with my background by nature, I only remember the things I did wrong. <laughs> we don't talk <laughs> so, about that too. Yeah, yeah, that's those are the things. I think some some of the things that that I did right is uh, is I, I I always told them to have big dreams. I always tried to take the ceiling off because I grew up with such a ceiling. I wanted them to have a bigger ceiling. I mm-hmm. I. Uh, I tried to model marriage for them. I, I think I did a, a good job of modeling marriage. I just have a great wife. I love her to death. And, you know, my kids, I, I grew up with people stumbling through my house and fighting and cursing, and they, they've they never seen me stumble. They've never seen me fight or curse. They, they've only known peace in the house. Hmm. And, and I, you know, I, I gave them opportunity and I'm super proud of them. And, uh, you know, looking back, I, I could do a million things better. Uh, young parents, I tell them all the time, you, you guys are sweating a lot of things that are not important. Really? The, the small <laughs> things that you worry about, they're, they're, they're not that important. You need, to, you need to love your kids and you need to give them a lot of freedom because they're going to make their own decisions regardless and trust them. I didn't trust my kids enough because I had, a, had this worldview of how dangerous the world is. Mm-hmm. where some of it, my, my childhood, some of it being in ministry, the world's just dangerous. And mm-hmm. I, I spent a lot of time and effort, you know, trying to hem them in and protect them from the danger. And I, I, I hemmed them in too much because okay. I was just trying to be protective. And, yeah. you know, you know, I'm, I'm first generation. I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure the deal out. But I, one good thing I know is that, you know, I flipped the script they'll do a lot better than me because their, their baseline is a lot higher than mine. Yeah. And so I look forward to that. Yeah. So one of them, I think said something about y'all having dinner together a lot. Was that something that was important in your home? We did. We, we fought for that because we, I never had that as a kid and I saw people have it and I was jealous. And so we, we fought for that one and we had, we had great dinners together. We, uh, there was oftentimes we didn't have much. Uh, when we first came home, we had very little, but it didn't matter. We uh, we enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, tell me, tell me about the girls. My 25-year-old is married to an outstanding young man. I have a son-in-law. They live in Panama City, and they are just doing great. My 23-year-old uh, works with me some, actually, in the brokerage and uh, is – doing multiple things in life, uh, now trying to find her career path. And she's, uh, my oldest is t- 
type A driven, already got her CPA. Uh, my middle child is the most kind, loving person in the world. And, and then true to birth order, my my youngest daughter, 21, is in her last semester at Clemson, and she's the life of the party, big personality, uh, The uh, brings the brings the comedy to the table all the time. And, yeah. You know, and, and and young guys always tell them too, like if you got three kids, you want four when you're my age. Like you, you just want one more <laughs> because they're they're a lot of work early, but they are um, they're everything late. Yeah. What What do you hope that they think of you now? As, now that they're grown, what, what what is your hope for how they would see their dad? Yeah, you know the uh, the great thing about writing the book is. Half the stuff in there my daughters didn't know. I protected them from all that stuff. We we weren't here. And so when they read the book, they were they were somewhat shocked to know just where I came from. And I think it even I th- I think it was great for our family because I think they gained some appreciation for how far we've made it, even though we're very imperfect. And so I, I hope for them as they look at me, I just hope they they um I just hope they realize how I want them to look at me as a guy that that certainly moved the needle. I didn't get as far as I wanted, but I moved the needle and I hope to goodness I set them up to take our family and, and our lineage uh, 10 times further in faith, in goodness, in name, in, in making a mark in this world. And that's, that's what's most important. Yeah. So, you know, we always do this family tribute. I think you knew it was coming. Yeah, I've seen enough to know it was coming. <laughs> yeah, the first few times we did it, we surprised some guys. Yeah. You know, it really strikes me about this family tribute, and I've seen what your daughter said about you. Is uh, I see you as that little kid over on Rose Roselawn. Your dad had a special name for you; he called you his little. Mm-hmm. You know, we won't say the word, right? And there was violence. There's fighting. Your mom is depressed. There's alcohol. There's all this stuff going on in this kid's life, and then you you go through these tragedies of losing your best friend and you're a mess then you become basically an alcoholic and you're a mess and yet through the grace of god and because you made a decision to flip the script we get to see what's become of the next generation and that's really what this program is all about and so that's why these family tributes mean so much to me because it shows what flipping the script is really about. So we want to share with you what your daughters had to say about daddy. Here we go. Hey dad, when they reached out and asked us to do a quick video, um, I thought about a couple of things that I wanted to say. So first of all, just want to say thank you for the way that you have led and continue to lead our family. I realize now just how special it was, um, the way that you led and prioritized our family and our family unit. Um, And I think we still see the fruits of that even now, whenever we get to all get together, we still spend hours around the dinner table, just talking and laughing. And um, I know that that is a direct 
reflection of the way that you um, organized and led our family. Um, so thank you for that. And we also got a prompt and a question of what our favorite thing about you is. And when I think about this and try to narrow it down to just one thing, I think just the fact that you're such a truth teller, um, I can trust you because I know you're going to tell me the truth even when it's hard. And even when it's hard, I know that you are ultimately always going to be in my corner. And so knowing those things, I think gives me just a lot of confidence as I walk through life, knowing that I'll always have your love and support and that you'll always be there to um, tell me the truth. So thanks for all you do. Love you. Hi, I'm Amanda. I'm the middle daughter. And I would say the thing that I love the most about my dad is just how driven he is. Um, he is always motivating us to be our best selves, always telling us not to be afraid to do what we want. Um, I've watched my dad go through a couple different jobs as I've grown up, and I just always thought that it was cool that he was never afraid to just do something new and show us that it's never too late to do what makes you happy. Um, so yeah. Hi, I'm Christy Carnes. I'm the youngest of the three daughters. And I think one of my favorite stories about my dad is when we were younger and we took a family beach trip to Myrtle Beach, I went and looked for these white high heel shoes, but I was playing with the mannequin that had them on. And my dad proceeded to block everyone from leaving the store with his arms up against the doors looking for me. And I just think that shows how protective and just how much he loves his kids. <laughs> Todd, Todd is a little little boy growing up in Alabama City, Alabama. Would you have ever thought that you would be the dad to three daughters that would pay that kind of tribute to you? No way. No way. You just uh, – it means everything. And I, I always told our girls uh, – I had a little expression. i go – when they would go out and, and do – I'd say, we're not common, we're Karns. Hmm. I was trying to lift them to that next level and i hope they take that that with them yeah i think they will well you flipped the script and uh it's it's good to see that happen it's it's strange to me to see that happen in a close friend that i grew up with that i didn't even know it just goes to show we don't know what's going on in the, the next door neighbor's house you know right. as we were we were in each other's house all the time i never never knew that but it's so encouraging, and my my hope is that there's going to be a little boy who's growing up, and your and he's in your situation now. I mean, it's not that I hope that he's in that situation, but that he'll see this or hear this, and he'll have a vision for what his life can be, because you've you've set the example. You know, I guess Bearing Home is one of my favorite ever books, and I guess I'm a little biased. Yes, I'm a. I'm a bad reader but I sat down and I just couldn't put this thing down Todd I had to read every bit of it and uh, so much that we didn't tell so many interesting stories it's such a good read but more than it being a good book your life is a good book and it's a book for kids to see and and I appreciate you telling that story anything else you feel like you need to say yeah the last thing I want to say is uh is there's not only some Todd Carnes out there there's some Craig McGriffs out there who have some people that they've been praying for, fighting for, hoping for, for a decade or more. And it's easy just to want to quit. Like, don't ever quit. Like, Craig McGriff stands massive in this story. 
because he, he never quit. And he people tell him to quit, he wouldn't quit. And he, you know, the, the, the Bible says, show mercy to those who doubt, snatch others from the fire in James. Like he, he snatched me from the fire. I'll never forget it. So you Craig McGriffs out there, y'all, y'all hold steadfast and you snatch a guy from the fire. Awesome. Awesome. Wow. Great story, Todd. And thank you for coming such a long way. And uh, Big sacrifice for you to be here, but we're going to get it into the people that need to see it. My pleasure. All right. My pleasure. Great to have an old friend. That'll conclude this episode of the That's My Dad podcast, where we're inspiring fathers to be great dads and we're breaking those cycles of generational fatherlessness and those cycles of generational substance abuse or whatever those dysfunctions might be it's our hope that we can uh, set a standard set a role model set an example and let some guys see that it can be done Todd you're a great example thanks for sharing your life great to be here man see you next week